Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us uh, today as part of our forum presentation from the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We are catching up with our partners in Central America. Uh, for about four years now, Holy Communion has been partnering with the nonprofit human rights advocacy organization, Christosol. We've set a couple of delegations down to be part of seminars in uh, El Salvador around questions of human rights to get to know some local advocates and um, look at ways in which we can bring human rights work back to North America, back to Missouri. Normally, we alternate years. Normally, we would uh, be bringing a group from Christosol, or at least a couple of folks from Christosol, to Missouri right now. And, of course, we can't do that. And so I'm really grateful uh, to both Noah and Osvaldo, and I'll let them introduce themselves a little bit. Uh, for joining me in this virtual way. Um, but if I could ask you both um, to introduce yourselves and as you do so, talk about uh, you know, the work of Christosol and, and the sort of general, what is the organization about? So if I could start with Noah um, and then we'll go to you, Osvaldo. Yeah, Mike, thanks for the invitation. It's good to be virtually connected to the, uh, to the community and, uh, up there. Um, I'm Noah Bullock. I'm the executive director of Crystal Sal. And so for those of you who, who are hearing about us for the first time, uh, we're a human rights organization uh, with a presence in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Uh, we are mandated to accompany and support victims of violence and human rights violations. Uh, and in the context of the pandemic and the recent events going down in the world, we also understand our mandate is, is uh, oriented towards defending democracy. Uh, the, the counter uh, trends of increasing authoritarianism uh, because we know that authoritarian governments uh, do not feel accountable necessarily to the citizens and much less so to their most vulnerable groups. Uh, there's a direct connection between authoritarian governance, human rights violations within their borders uh, and world history shows us to uh, the authoritarian governments, autocrats, don't respect people within their borders, much less respect norms or standards outside of their borders. And sooner or later, they generate greater instability in the world. So we see ourselves uh, working focused on victims, people immediately uh, affected by violence, by human rights violations, uh, but we see ourselves as interconnected uh, with the events and things that are happening even up in uh, the United States uh, as democracy is uh, holding on tooth and nail uh, in some of our <laughs> communities. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more, but um, I'm always impressed with how much when we have a group that engages with crisis, all, whether that's in person or whether that's through online learning, how much they come back and say, these are things that we're facing. We just don't name them the same way um, in the United States. So. We're going to come back to that question. Osvaldo, you're one of the newer members at Christosol, and I wonder if you could give us a little bit of your background. I'm Osvaldo La Puente, and I work in Christosol, Guatemala, and I have a long international career in Central America since 2000, from the very beginning of the new century. So it's a pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. Two years ago, when we had Noah and David Morales, uh, the leading human rights attorney that Christosol has in El Salvador, 
we talked a lot about the Mosote case, which is this emblematic case around human rights and around sort of both what is the state of how, how is Central American governments going to interact with human rights historically and going into the future. And I know there's been some developments in the Mosote case in recent days, and I'm wondering if between the two of you, you can catch us up a little bit about what's going on with El Mosote and maybe give us a snapshot for those who are hearing about it for the first time of what's going on, what Mosote is. Just a quick background. Crystal Salvador, we are a non-governmental human rights organization, but in El Salvador, uh, when the attorney general's office uh, is unwilling or incapable to prosecute uh, crimes, uh, non-state organizations or, or legal representatives can represent victims uh, and, in, in, in penal trials. And so Crystal Sal is currently representing the victims of the largest massacre uh, committed on the American continent in modern times, which is the El Masote massacre. Over uh, a thousand people were, were slaughtered, uh, the majority were children, by uh, 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 complicated in a complicated military operation uh, involving soldiers who were trained and armed by the United States. And so it's a, it's a big case. It's the largest homicide case, like I said, in the, you know, in the modern times on our continent. And it just so happens that Crystal Sal's team of four lawyers is prosecuting it, which is kind of a strength. There's like a, 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 dis, a, a disbalance in the magnitudes, right? Like the, <laughs> the magnitude of the, of the crime and, and the resources that we bring to justice. But that is the reality that we're trying to change. So after you know, 40 years of impunity, uh, we have an opportunity now to prosecute uh, the uh, military high command at that time in El Salvador, which was also uh, the military junta that was controlling the country. Uh, uh, over 20 officers, uh, and many of them generals, who are now on trial for the first war crime ever prosecuted in a national court. And we are at the very end of like a discovery phase where we're bringing the evidence forward. Um, and in that, we asked uh, for the judge to order uh, the Minister of Defense uh, to open the military archives so that we can have access to the war plans that would demonstrate responsibility structure for the slaughter. Uh, and this has been a, a demand that was, that's been made since the signing of the peace accords. Uh, there's a Supreme Court ruling that orders him to do this. Uh, and now there's a specific judge uh, investigating uh, murder, uh, torture, uh, forced disappearance, among other crimes, uh, to, to open the archives. And we brought in experts actually from Guatemala, uh, military archival experts, we flew them in. Uh, and on Monday morning, these inspections were going to start. Uh, and it was a, if, you, if you see the videos online, it's kind of striking. You see a judge. Uh, walking in just his suit with you know, four or five of his uh, colleagues up to the military high command, which is you know, uh, like a fort, uh, and they're stopped at the gate and the colonel is waiting for them. Uh, it informs them that they will not have access to the military archives uh, because of national security risks. Uh, and so um, that was a, a historic moment because nobody has ever had access to the military archives, much less, you know, a, a legal team representing the victims of war crimes perpetrated by the military at the highest levels. Uh, and you have a, a blatant act of obstruction of justice 
being committed uh, in this historic moment by the Minister of Defense and uh, under orders of the President of the of El Salvador. Uh, and so one of the things that were that's important about El Mosote, and I know I'm only supposed to talk for two minutes, I guess, but El Mosote is a crime of such magnitude that we understand that there are the victims, obviously, whose families were slaughtered and homes were burned, uh, are, are have an interest in justice. But the entire Salvadoran community, the country itself, has an interest in there being justice because nobody can be a company above the law. Uh, and then thirdly, all of humanity has an interest in justice or is understood to be a victim in this case because of the grave nature of the crimes. And so the, the prosecution of this case would set an international standard against targeting civilians and specifically children in the conduct of, uh, of armed conflict. Uh, and in El Salvador, 2020, the fact that uh, the military makes this gesture saying that they will not submit themselves to civilian control is a pretty big indicator about how uh, much is yet to, to, to go uh, until we truly achieve democracy uh, in, in El Salvador. And that's the history playing out in front of our faces on the newspapers. David is okay. He was, uh, he was present at the investigation or at the inspection site. Uh, he was accosted by a group of veterans who, who, who threatened him, and, uh, but they're known people and they've been doing it to him for 10 years. They, but um, you know, they, they set off, actually, the, the, the threats against him set off an international reaction, uh, Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, all sent warnings. Uh, saying that human rights defenders should be respected and, and should not be attacked. Uh, so that's that's what's uh, going down on this weekend. Uh, you should follow us on Twitter. It's a, it's a show, <laughs> and it's kind of exciting. So it's, it, I don't I hadn't heard about David, and I'm really grateful to know that he's okay. Um, I also know David a little bit well enough to know that he probably took it uh, with his chin up and just sort of tried to laugh it off. But I'm glad to know that David is, is all right and um, know that Holy Communion is going to keep you all in our prayers as the next day goes forward. That's a, Mosote was picked as an emblematic case. Um, and Noah, you talked a little bit about that because the idea of Christosol tries to take things that are emblematic, that, that sort of push the agenda of human rights, not just in the individual case, but sort of programmatically for the region along. And I wonder if we could talk about, um, and especially since we have Osvaldo with us, other ways that Christosal is identifying right now and standing with victims and standing with folks strategically to try to, you know, protect democracy and, and work to further the cause of human rights in the region. Are there other things that you would want us to know that you're working on right now? So we are trying to apply these lessons from strategic litigation, from transitional justice to different matters. A case and examples is a, a really important uh, point in our agenda, working when for defending LGBTIQ plus people in the region, in particular, when we're talking about hate crimes and discrimination in general. So we designed a new strategy 
for working with them and defending their rights. The main idea is to use uh, a, a particular approach using legal actions, obviously, but at the same time, in parallel, using statistic communication, advocacy, and different forms and ways for changing reality. The main idea is not try to understand them or explain their situations, is give them spaces and empowering for using their own voices when defending their rights. We want them uh, on the front line defending their rights. As you know, here in Central America, we are talking uh, um, of, uh, over different situations. We don't have uh, legal support for the right of identity, for example. So trans people in general have not the access to healthcare, to education or formal employment, you know? So this is the general umbrella for discrimination. But also we are helping in particular specific cases of hate crimes, because as you know, as a result of the cultural approach to the matter and the discrimination, the structural violence against them, you can find this general umbrella of hate and discrimination, but also on the other hand, these particular extremely violent situations against them in impunity, you know, without any consequence or accountability. And in some cases, we are talking about national or, or local authorities. It's not just a matter of uh, other civil people or in, we are trying to innovate, be creative. And we are working with the LGBTQ organizations in the region, uh, applying this new approach and we are hoping to have concrete results, changing realities from particular, but also general um, measures and ideas. I keep coming back to the ways in which this is a regional problem for North America and Central America, that, um, you know, as you talk about questions of impunity, um, both in terms of violence towards the LGBTQ and especially the trans community, um, both for just folks who are, you know, civilian actors committing hate crimes. Um, here in St. Louis, just a few weeks ago, we had another march for a trans woman who was killed by the police. There have been no charges. The name of the police officer who killed her in her home has not been released. There's been no um, movement toward justice. And so you talk about impunity. We know something of impunity. We're also talking on the day in which it was yes. announced that two out of three of Breonna Taylor's killers, um, who are police officers, will face no charges. And the only charge that one of them will face will be something like reckless endangerment. Um, and so there will be essentially no justice for Breonna Taylor, who was killed last spring, an African-American woman. And so we, we know something of impunity. And it's, it's why when I listened about what's going on in Christosal, it makes me, you know, 
aware that we have faced the same issues in the United States. We tend to think about developing and developed countries, but in some sense, we're all trying to live in democracy and defend democracy these days. Greece was all pretty, I don't want to say unique, but it puts you all on the edge because you're working so much with the LGBTQI community. Is that right? Uh, I think what makes us different is that we are striving to be a more diverse organization ourselves, meaning mm -hmm. that we're an organization uh, where we look at, in, we have a diversity of uh, indigenous people, we have participation of gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans people, uh, we have North Americans, we're multicultural. Uh, and that is, I think, something that we bring, an, an added value that we bring to uh, the struggle is, is that our own composition is a recognition that, uh, that vulnerable groups are not a subset of human rights. Mm -hmm. Their causes are interconnected uh, to all causes of human rights. Um, and I think just to tie it to the point you were making about uh, democracy, we, we one of the reasons we decided to make uh, the are the issue of impunity for these killings of trans uh, people in the countries here uh, a priority is that we see that while bar barbaric killings go uh, go on without any accountability uh, de facto uh, certain people and societies lives don't matter to use a word that's familiar to you all and that means that we do not have a full democracy. There cannot be democracy in Central America, much less in the United States, where trans people can be killed uh, with impunity, where they can be discriminated against uh, and tortured uh, and relegated. That means that we have still much to go towards consolidating democracy. And so I think the point linking it to Amosote, there's a term that we use, transitional democracy, which is a, you know, a phase that's usually described uh, that countries should go through after suffering armed conflict or uh, massive violations of human rights in order to reestablish or establish for the first time democracy and peace. Um, and so that is not, that's something that I think was intended to be applied to countries like El Salvador or Guatemala who recently emerged from civil wars and, but when those processes are not adequately, adequately addressed, as in the case of El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, the human rights violations and the structures underneath them that permitted them uh, to happen uh, in the community are still existing. Then even 40 years later, there's a, it's necessary to continue the work towards transitional justice. In the United States, we uh, have to look at uh, the origins of slavery. We have to look at uh, the, the killings and genocide of, genocide of indigenous people and recognize that the United States is a transitional democracy uh, and until uh, the underlying structures that permitted those uh, atrocities against those populations are ended uh, and violence is ended uh, we will not have fully uh, emerged as a, as a, as a full democracy uh, so that, that's one of those things that ties the issue together I just, the idea of applying that we are a developing democracy or a transitional democracy or that we are in the midst of a transitional justice process to the United States, which tends to think of itself as, you know, the city on the hill, the shining example. Um, but I think it's only served a particular portion of folks. 
Um, one of the things that I find really important about the regional strategy, um, and one of the questions that we're in the midst of here in our election cycle in the United States, comes around the decision to accompany victims. Christosal did a report that looked at what happens when folks are returned to Central America. Um, and it particularly, it, it did narrative storytelling. It accompanied particular victims who were returned and asked them to explain why they'd gone to the United States and what was happening when they were back. And I wonder if you can let us know sort of what is happening? What is Christosal hearing from folks who are being returned to Guatemala, to El Salvador, to Honduras, what is that facing like as we hear about all these mass deportations and from an administration that wants to deport as many people and refuse as many asylum cases as possible? What happens when people return and how is Christosal accompanying those folks? Sure. Look, as framework, you are talking about democracy and real peace and these phenomenon as processes, you know? not as, as a goal and a, as accomplished goals. This general idea of impunity is not just about We are used to think about impunity when talking, when seeing the numbers, the statistics uh, about justice. Uh, what we learned in Central America is that impunity is about, about power, not only about the judiciary performance. So it's the way the power is used or is concentrated in some particular groups. Migration is the type of general and structural phenomenon with the capacity of explaining the situation in the region. This is the symptom we can say that uh, invite us to try to understand their situation in these countries. The lack of security, violence, the lack of education, healthcare, opportunities, employment, racism, and obviously the, the structural corruption and impunity. I, I was talking about impunity as a power factor, not only a judicial matter. So these are the causes for them when analyzing their future. So. Uh, during these particular times, the pandemic, what we are witnessing in Central America is the fastest um, return, talking about deportees, and the cycle going faster than ever. And this speed is really unprecedented. We are uh, building uh, statistics, we are, um, you know, interviewing deportees and returnees in Guatemala, but also we are going to start in the other countries. And we are knowing a lot about their situation. This first aspect, the speed of the cycle, but also the, uh, their intention of returning, trying again to get to the US. And obviously, the COVID-19 situation. A lot of people infected or, or not knowing about their health situation, their health situation, excuse me. So in the same flight, you can find infected people 
with healthy people. But at the end of the day, uh, under the risk of contagions. Uh, in general, we are really worried about the present situation, but also over the future, because we are waiting for, for a massive wave of migration, considering the really, really increasing situation on poverty, extreme poverty, malnutrition, and violence, because it's all part of the same uh, framework when understanding these countries. So, recapping, we are witnessing a lot of migrants trying once and again to get the American soil, but also we are worrying for more. We often hear about asylum claims that are denied in the United States. Um, and we have a local, here in um, St. Louis, we have a local uh, asylee who is somebody trying to make an asylum claim who's been resident for five years in a UCC church. And the Trump administration um, just went and raided a church in Maryland and sent somebody uh, deported, like started deportation proceedings about somebody who was in a church. But so much of that question about asylum focuses on, you know, what is the threat when people are returned? Um, so uh, Noah, if I could uh, ask you, because it looks like Osvaldo has got a, um, a not a great connection. What are we hearing about what happens when people are returned in these countries? And has that changed um, in recent months with COVID? Yeah, one, there's a, an interesting change um, in that there's a new category of people coming back that, that mm. are called expelled. expelled. Uh, people who are expelled from the United States, meaning that uh, they passed no time at all in the United States. They got to the border, applied for asylum, and were sent to Mexico and deported back to one of the countries in Central America. Um, and so that's a reflection of the closing of the international protection system of the United States, the closing off of it. Uh, and the, the consequences for that group of people uh, are dire. Uh, in the Mesoamerican corridor, potentially millions of people uh, who are not under the protection of any state, who find themselves uh, ultimately in limbo. Uh, and that's a major failure of the international system. Uh, if we're worried about uh, you know, a breakdown of global systems or, or, or governance of nation states, uh, we find the first indicators uh, in the migrant population. Uh, as we continue to fail them and do nothing really to stabilize uh, the regions. The consequences of unaddressed humanitarian need uh, are, are always, uh, sooner or later, we'll, uh, we'll always, uh, the, the bill will come home. They will get, we'll send the bill. <laughs> it's, it's always better to protect rights, uh, safeguard lives uh, in the short and the long run. Uh, the, the political decision not to do that is usually on the basis of the power dynamics that Osvaldo was talking about. And yeah. for a while, the conditions that people were placed in when they were returned, especially to El Salvador, was reprehensible, right? And they created uh, what were called containment centers. Uh, ultimately, 12,000 Salvadorans either at the border or on the streets were picked up uh, by soldiers uh, and put into containment centers that were improvised basically holding facilities, most of them without adequate uh, hygienic uh, or, or even food situations. And um, uh, 
and they were we Crystal Sal had an important role in bringing an end to that practice through litigation, uh, and uh, we, we representing like 150 people who were some of them were returnees, deported people. Uh, uh, we presented habeas corpus cases in the to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in our favor, uh, and 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 broadened their ruling to say what powers the, that the president had uh, to detain people in the context of the, of the COVID emergency. Uh, and ironically, like I just said, uh, violating human rights usually causes more expenses. Uh, and these uh, containment centers uh, literally cost billions of dollars. Uh, and I don't know if billions, but the government did spend $2.6 billion in six months. We don't know where that is. Uh, and also became centers of, of infection. So yeah. it is always better to respect rights, to act transparently, uh, even in the moments of emergencies. Um, the, just to say one last thing you mentioned about, uh, my, about deportees, uh, more, more Central Americans have been deported during the global health pandemic than any other, uh, any other region of the world. It's about 60, 70,000 people were sent back to their countries with limited uh, health protocols, procedures in place, uh, and found themselves trying to reintegrate in societies that were in lockdown, uh, and uh, and became very uh, found themselves in, in a situation of hunger. And what we find now, and Ospado can speak to this more in depth, but uh, in Guatemala, for example, the majority of the migrants come from uh, the. Guatemala's high plateau, which has been one of the primarily indigenous regions of the country. Uh, and our colleagues doing the monitoring uh, are shocked at the levels of poverty that they're finding uh, among the indigenous people in Guatemala. Uh, and I think that's something that's worth reflecting on is that uh, uh, the original nations of this continent, uh, our Mayan brothers and sisters, are still the poorest. Uh, they are still... Uh, treated as if they were second-class human beings. How is that possible? We should all be wondering. This is a, a tough day, I think, in the States, and it's been a tough week um, with the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and with the um, decision around Breonna Taylor. Um, and, you know, just sort of all we're hearing. And, and to hear today, you know, essentially, um, you know, as we, we're seeing governments in our region, both in the United States and in Central America, are using covid as an excuse for further violations of human rights. Our government is deporting people and not treating people well in detention centers, uh, and COVID sort of keeps people's attention elsewhere. But I wonder about that idea of transitional democracy. Um, as we face these moments and we don't know what the election here is going to bring, what um, you know the future political situation is gonna be in the Central American countries, how can transitional democracy, like how does a commitment to human rights work and the lens of human rights uh, help you continue to be able to move when democracy seems to be transitioning in the wrong direction? Mike, you, you bring our personal relationship into most of these conversations, but when we were little chickens, uh, first in El Salvador, getting to know the world, uh, at least I, I think I had the idea that what was, um, what was asked of our generation was the continuation of the broadening of rights uh, that, that 
arc of the moral universe that Martin Luther King talked about it. We were, we were continuing to build on a legacy of certain conquests of rights. And, and we would see in our lifetime an expansion. Uh, and it actually turns out we're going to have to fight tooth and nail just to hold on to the, the minimum standards. Uh, that's the reality uh, that our generation has to, uh, has to stand up uh, and, and assume. Uh, and so what does it mean to defend rights uh, in, a, in a moment of democratic setbacks? Uh, it's, a, it's a question we asked ourselves, what does it mean to defend rights and democracy in the middle of a global health pandemic? Um, and, and the thing is, is that human rights, the authoritarians uh, and others, aspiring authoritarians, uh, say that things like democracy, things like rights, are obstacles for me to be able to guarantee the security of everybody, right? That's where they, that people who are trying to detract from the expansion of rights to people sell a narrative that says that, you know, this is an extraordinary moment uh, and I need extraordinary powers uh, in order to be able to guarantee you security. That means that we can't talk about rights, that rights are an obstacle, they're a speed bump. Uh, and in reality, Human rights, as they were proposed by the World War II generation in the Universal Declaration, are not obstacles. They are the pathway to, to response. Uh, they, are, they offer uh, a way, or just to make it shorter, uh, finding, putting uh, human dignity and rights uh, uh, at the front of all of our actions is a way uh, to respond to emergency and to transform the underlying causes uh, that make those emergencies so acute in, in vulnerable populations. And so as democracy is in uh, a crisis, uh, it is the very standards and, and, and human rights themselves that I think enter or offer us a pathway towards strengthening. Uh, so uh, it's, got, it's about keeping the faith. Yeah, keeping the faith, as the presiding bishop would say. I think that the next step, and this is our inspiration in Christosal, is justice. We have to work on justice, access to justice, accountability, you know? We have to build this really strong rule of law. Uh, this uh, lack of equality and this lack of real um, uh, rule of law is generating the uncertainty and the weakening of our democracies at the end of the day. And it, it's really sad during 21st century, still witnessing authoritarianism, tyrants, and violence from government, you know? And we thought that was an ancient period and our evolution, but it's not. Yeah. So it's a day-by-day -day commitment. Every time I engage with Christosol, I, I find the nimbleness, to use a very, you know, sort of buzz North American word, but the nimbleness of the organization to be so inspiring. You know, I was down there a couple of years ago now, but when the Mosote case was advancing and the lawyers from Christosol weren't in the courtroom, but they were at the legislative assembly with Mosote victims, and it wasn't just the attorneys, it was the communication staff of Christosol, because Simultaneously, they were working a legislative agenda, a judicial agenda, and a communication strategy to try to help the, the whole of El Salvador come along to this idea that 
justice for the victims is central to how we take our next steps together. And it's a critical phase. And that also created political pressure um, to keep the process going. I find that kind of the work that Christosal is done on Masote and they, that they are using in those strategic cases so inspiring and frankly daunting for those of us in the United States who say we care about justice. There's, there's several strategies that we got to build together um, to keep up with uh, a little bit of what Christosal does. So uh, October 8th, uh, there is a 20th anniversary um, for Christosal. Uh, Noah, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, obviously we we, uh, we would have preferred to do something uh, in person, but we're gonna do this online. And, and it's uh, we're celebrating 20 years since our founding, uh, which for us is a huge milestone. Um, and uh, and also trying to celebrate a little bit, uh, you know, the leadership and, and responsibility that we've kind <laughs> of taken on. Uh, but the event is not gonna be boring. I, that's my goal. It will not be boring. Uh, we have um, a famous, sort of famous, like a, a tiny desk concert, NPR famous uh, artist called Gina Chavez, uh, who's connected to El Salvador. Uh, uh, she's a singer-songwriter, and she's going to be our, uh, ho our ma uh, maestro de ceremonia, our, uh, our host. And uh, we have... Other, we have a famous poet, uh, Karen uh, Forche, who just wrote a book about El Salvador. Uh, will be reciting uh, some of her poetry, as well as one of her protégés, who's a Salvadoran uh, American, who will recite some of their, his poetry. We have the Guatemalan National Choir will be joining us. Uh, we have um, a puppet show <laughs> the church in New York will be doing to explain. I'm really looking forward happened. to that puppet show. Yeah. So uh, don't expect us. To, I hope uh, don't expect us just to be talking at you about human rights all night. It, it's a celebration. Uh, it's a virtual one, but you can drink at home and uh, and and dance to uh, the music and laugh at the puppet show and uh, enjoy the poetry. That's the goal. Uh, we have a couple very generous uh, longtime supporters who have given us <laughs> uh, who has given us a matching grant. Uh, and I think at this point it's about fifty thousand dollars. So if we can raise fifty thousand uh, dollars around around this event, we will walk away uh, with a hundred thousand dollars, which will be, a real a real achievement in a difficult year for us yeah. but we also know there are a lot of people who care about uh, Christoph Saul deeply in our mission and and this is a special year for us so if you can join us we'd love to have you and I and and, and if the money the donation is not a possibility just come and, and enjoy the show because I think it'll be good I'm really looking for I heard a rumor that there's going to be an address by the presiding bishop potentially too uh, and he's always a big ticket getter so um, we're excited about that and we'll get more of a chance. I hear, I'm looking forward to some of the produced segments. There's going to be great snapshot videos about the work that Christo Sala is doing so that we can get little pieces of it in between the entertainment. I'm really looking forward to it. Noah Osvaldo, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Um, thank you for the work that you continue to do. We look forward to hearing from you more on October 8th. Um, but really, really thank you for taking the time to update us about what's going on with Christo Sala.
Thank you, and sorry for my connections problems, you know. <laughs> it's it's, it's beyond my control, way. you know. Yeah. But yeah. Thank you for the time. It was a pleasure.